Welcome to the Red Words Podcast, where we pursue a personal relationship with God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Join us weekly as we deep dive into the dynamic and oftentimes curious Holy Spirit-inspired book of God's Word. Revelation chapter 19 introduces the absolute joy, wonder, and amazement of Christ's long-awaited return to earth. In chapter 19, part 1, we learn about two important events that occur in heaven prior to King Jesus' return. Here are verses 1 and 2. After this I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. Multitudes shout in heaven, rejoicing, praising, and worshiping the God who saved them. They know they are beloved. They know that he has and will continue to avenge them. They also know that God does not turn away from his righteous judgment, and those who fear him recognize he has every right to avenge his beloved. But who are these multitudes? They are called God's church. Quite simply, they are the people throughout time who, during their earthly lives, chose the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. They accepted him as their blood bridge, the one who would return them back to Father God. From the moment of our creation, God wanted to live with us forever, and throughout the ages, those who choose the Lord Jesus Christ will experience that. In the most simplified terms, those dead believers and those believers who are alive at the moment of the harpazo will be provided resurrected bodies in the air when they meet the Lord. Now don't misunderstand me here. There will be others who receive resurrected bodies too, just not at this time. This multitude recognizes that the judgments of God are justified, for many of them were martyred, while others lived ordinary lives. Regardless, this group worships and praises because the false religious systems and Babylon are gone, destroyed forever, and they are excited that the next period of history is about to commence. But first, more praise, as we read in verses 3 and 4. And again their voices rang out, Praise the Lord! The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God, who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen! Praise the Lord! This is the perfect opportunity to realize how important it is that present-day believers should be consumed with praising and worshipping God too for his return is promised. In fact, we can pray today and every day for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on this old, groaning, and dying earth. Next, an angel encourages the multitudes in heaven and modern-day believers as well to participate in daily worship and praise through reverence and godly fear. Here are verses 5 and 6. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, or the roar of mighty ocean waves, or the crash of loud thunder. 
Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We can never praise and worship God enough for all that He's done for us. But the angel states that all of God's servants should fear Him. What is godly fear? Fearing God is a scriptural term that often trips people up. To understand why it's necessary, we need to understand who God is. The Lord God Almighty is the unseen, all-knowing, always-present, totally powerful, three-person Trinity who is creator of everything. God controls it all. God knows, and He's everywhere. Add to all that, He's not going away. It doesn't matter if people choose to believe in Him or not. He simply is, and evidence of Him surrounds every human being on this planet. And he did something extraordinary. According to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, to the end of that chapter, God remodeled this planet to make it a place for humanity. He took a world he'd previously created and reformed it specifically for us. He planted a garden of such brilliance and beauty, it defies imagination, and then pulled man from the dirt to be his greatest creation. Adam had God created plants and birds and fish and animals. And when that wasn't enough, God provided Adam a helpmate. Eve was perfect and co-ruled earth equally with her husband for a time. But Creator God also gave the couple the freedom to choose, and that free will tripped them up. Still, in the beginning, these two humans only knew God as the agape-loving being who made them. All they ever understood was his goodness. They walked with him and spoke with him. He provided for them. They experienced absolute perfection, just as God created. The concept of absolute perfection is beyond human comprehension, but one day it will be reinstated, as we learned later in Revelation. For some unknown time period, however, the concept of evil never entered the minds and hearts of the original couple. And you all know the rest of the story about that forbidden tree and the fallen angel that introduced evil into our midst. So, back to godly fear. Did the original couple fear God? Perhaps. But if they didn't, they should have. Because if they'd had the deep recognition and respect for God's power and might, they would have completely and totally obeyed his command not to eat the fruit that would open their minds to every sort of horrifying thing. If the couple had feared God and his promise of death, they would have sprinted away from that creepy crawly serpent so fast our collective heads would spin. So, this understanding brings us around to what godly fear actually is. It is the acknowledgement and acceptance of God's power and holiness and righteousness and goodness, along with His absolute command over all things to judge. Because as Creator, all things belong to Him, and anyone who rejects Him will be judged. That's a lot to take in, especially for a non-believer, because misunderstanding godly fear often pushes people away from God. But godly fear involves the absolute and ultimate respect for the one who created us, and it becomes the believer's desire to seek and learn and grow in the knowledge of him. Because godly fear generates seeking and learning and growing the new believer into a mature believer. 
Then, godly fear becomes the tool that welcomes God's power and authority and knowledge and presence in the believer's life. But still, it's more than that. Fearing God culminates in His protection and guidance and abundant blessings and hope and joy in every situation. When godly fear is misunderstood, it can be so difficult to grasp, for the unbeliever must experience his love and blessings to fully understand what he does for them every day. And people can only experience him by taking that leap of faith that drives them to seek. Once they do, they usually choose him, and after that, they experience who he is. Now, here is a wonderful fact about godly fear. Those who fear God and come to know Him don't have to fear anything. A true believer is not afraid or terrorized or mind-controlled, no matter what happens, because the end result of fearing God is that God is for you and no one can stand against you. To remain in respectful godly fear is to be in His everlasting presence forever, regardless of whether or not the believer is alive or dead. And that's where Revelation is heading right now, because those believers who are dead and the believers who are captured into the air during the Harpazo will be in heaven when the tribulation begins. Therefore, they won't experience the horrors. Instead, these believers enjoy a completely opposite experience during their new lives in heaven. Therefore, according to this verse, godly fear creates a heightened level of praise and worship that is worth further exploration. Next, this angel tells the multitudes to be glad and rejoice. For a great celebration, a wedding feast, is about to occur and all are invited. This will be a tremendous affair like none we've ever witnessed. The wedding feast lasts seven days and is filled with singing and dancing and wine and food and fellowship. But sandwiched between the harpazo and the wedding feast are two important events not mentioned in Revelation. The first is called the judgment seat of Christ, when God's church comes before the Lord, as written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. To emphasize, the we in this passage represents God's church who are already in heaven. In the Greek, this judgment is called the bima seat because it portrays the raised platform where judges sat during athletic events. These judges made sure contestants followed the rules they did not condemn nor punish. Their job was to witness, correct, and present awards to the winners. So King Jesus presides over this judgment much the same way, as each member of God's church reports on the earthly works they perform for him after their salvation. The king places value upon each work and tests it by fire. Those good works that survive are rewarded, and those works that are not good are burned away without a reward as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11-15. through 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. 
The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. One of the best things about the Bema Seat is that Jesus knows the mind and heart of each believer, and that makes him the very best judge possible. He listens to each account and tests the results of that conversation with fire, and then rewards accordingly. The Bema Seat is the end result of how a believer conducts themselves on earth after they've been given the Lord's free gifts of salvation, redemption, and justification. All the Lord does here is listen to the truth about what each individual accomplished, and then He rewards their efforts. Therefore, every single believer can determine right now what good works they will perform, but there are rules, as we'll soon see. Meantime, please keep in mind that believers are not being judged for sin at the Bema Seat. Oh, no. Jesus already paid that price for every single member of God's church. Okay, then why is the Bema Seat necessary? Because this judgment directly leads to the second event, which is the invitation-only wedding ceremony between King Jesus and his bride. The Bema Seat determines who is invited. After every believer in God's church goes through the judgment process, Jesus invites those believers whose earthly works reflected their dedication, obedience, and servanthood to Him. These rewarded individuals are given the pure white linen gowns of righteousness. Thereafter, King Jesus and His bride are married inside God's heavenly temple with the Lord God as their witness. No other guests are permitted inside. Those believers from God's church whose earthly works did not reflect dedication, obedience, and servanthood to the Lord will remain outside the temple. Additionally, because these individuals did not receive rewards, they also will not rule and reign with King Jesus in His new kingdom. Remember, Jesus rewards according to each individual's personal decision to serve. These individuals are believers. They don't lose their salvation, redemption, or justification, but they will need to learn how to serve. Therefore, they will spend their time in King Jesus' millennial kingdom learning dedication, obedience, and servanthood. Once learned, they will be rewarded and perfected, and they will live in the forthcoming kingdom of heaven with the Lord God and His Son forever, as we see later in Revelation. Okay, that's a lot to take in. Let's break down the steps that lead to a believer dedicating, obeying, and serving the Lord here on earth. In the New Testament, Paul teaches that the believer must earnestly seek, strive, and contend to do the Lord's will. Paul relates this earthly endeavor back to athletics, specifically to running a foot race and fighting to win. Well, who is the believer competing against? Satan, the world, and their old sin nature that constantly attempts to lure them back into their old pre-salvation. Paul teaches that the believer is to shed every desire to remain in the world. 
They are to hate all worldly sin-filled devices and all that they encompass, pride, egotism, money, power, control, etc. Just think of it as all the temptations and deceit. The believer's race is against all that is ungodly, and the believer knows the race is hard because old behaviors entice. That old broad road filled with like-minded people begs participation, while the current narrow and laborious path they're running seems all but impossible to accomplish. The pull back to sin is great, except for God. When the striving believer runs the race with his eyes set on God, the path becomes straight and the finish line comes into view. Nevertheless, the race is not easy. This striving, pushing, and straining to run well toward God is what King Jesus rewards. So how does one accomplish this? Pray in earnest to learn what the Lord's will is for you, because every believer's service is different. God's church is a huge body of believers, and each one has their specific assignments. These earnest prayers will be answered through Holy Spirit who lives within each believer's heart. Therefore, be prepared to listen and receive the Lord's will, and then be absolutely dedicated and obedient to it. Actively serve in the capacity that is set aside for you. Do not deviate, add, or subtract. When that good work is completed, pray intently for the Lord's next good work to be accomplished through you. Then be prepared, for with each new work, the tasks become more difficult. This is required to keep the believer close to the Lord's will, for without him the works are dead, they have no value, and cannot be correctly completed. Also, the works turn a new believer into a mature believer. One can see this closeness in the relationship between a loving groom and his bride. It develops and grows between the couple, who is long married and knows the value of trust and commitment. Never is the believer to go forward alone of their own accord, and particularly never of their own accord while claiming they are serving the Lord. This is prideful and incorrect and leads to dead works. Only those works which are provided through earnest and seeking prayer will be rewarded, for Holy Spirit is the only one who guides the believer to the Lord's will. Interestingly, the Lord knows His beloved so well that when they seek His will and then listen and obey, He provides the work they love to do. Because in seeking Him, the believer blesses the Lord and He calls them His faithful ones or overcomers. These God-fearing and joyful believers run away from worldly things and focus strictly on being the Lord's hands and feet to the lost and suffering. The end result is, both the recipients and the believer are richly blessed. Now one more thing. The Lord knows how difficult these jobs are, so He also provides all the necessary tools to accomplish the job. And so, at the Bema Seat, Jesus rewards His faithful ones with glorious privilege and rewards. They become His bride because they are found trustworthy to fulfill His commandments. Overcomers obey and take action, and King Jesus wants these faithful and trusted believers by his side when he begins his thousand-year rulership of earth, for they will rule and reign with him 
as part of their reward. Okay, the marriage between the groom and his bride occurs in heaven. However, the wedding feast takes place after King Jesus returns to earth. So let's continue as verses 7 through 9 describe King Jesus' bride and the wedding feast. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then he added, These are true words that come from God. The groom presents his bride in all her preparations, beautifully crowned and adorned. They stand before the multitudes in great anticipation of the greatest celebration of all time, and all of God's church are blessed to be invited to the feast. Join me next time as Revelation chapter 19 introduces the second coming of the great King Jesus. And so, dear friends, take heed of the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God today as you seek a deeper personal relationship with Him. Thank you for joining me and know that the Lord Jesus Christ loves you very much, and so do we. Until next time, may the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen and Amen.